Hello and welcome to Landings with a Flare, the podcast where we supplement and support flight training. This is Captain Teresa. This conversation was recorded on the audio platform called Clubhouse. You will likely hear some variation in audio quality as speakers tune in from around the world. We hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Welcome aboard. Welcome, everyone. Today, we are going to start by talking about how to find the right flight school and the right flight instructor. So there are more structured flight schools and there are less structured flight schools. The less structured flight schools in the international community are often called modular flight schools. Each rating, which we've talked about previously, is kind of in its own unit. And you basically often pay as you go and that kind of thing. And you can take one license at a time and build on it. You know, the private pilot is usually the first and then often the instrument rating and that kind of thing. Then maybe commercial, then multi-engine. And so that would often be called modular in the international community. In the USA, we typically call that a Part 61 flight school. And we'll talk about this more when we talk about regulations, but that's because the part of the regulations that governs it is called Part 61. So some of those flight schools, you can get just at little private private companies that teach at airports. Some of those companies are called FBOs. Who would like to explain what an FBO is? Enrique. So from all the knowledge I gathered over the time here talking with you guys, I know that FBO stands for Fixed Based Operator. Pretty much someone who has a kind of a structure, maybe even goes to like running the airport itself, the airfield, and provides aeronautical services to, to the airport. Great explanation. FBO, Fixed Base Operator. It's like a small company at an airport. And like Enrique said, it can provide other services in addition to generally smaller flight training. It can provide fuel. It can provide maintenance. It can provide catering services for planes that stop by and drop off passengers. FBOs can have a wide range of functions at airports. So if you are in a modular course or Part 61 course, there are many small ways or smaller places where you can do your flight training. There are also things called flying clubs. And sometimes that means that there's like a part ownership of an aircraft in a club with other people. And sometimes people will just buy their own airplane and get a private instructor to teach them as well. Just very, you know, one-on-one private instruction, that kind of thing. So Within a modular course or a Part 61 course, there can be a lot of smaller private ways to do it. But now we are going into the more structured courses. If you are in the international community, a lot of these really structured approved courses will be integrated with an airline. So it'll be an integrated type program or an integrated airline program. And in the United States, it's often not directly approved or linked with an airline, but it might be linked or approved with a high-level university or something like that. In the United States, we call that a Part 141 program. And again, that has to do with the type of regulation or where the regulations are. It's in Part 141 of the regulations. 
So Part 141 and integrated programs tend to have a very set syllabus that is overseen much more strictly and it's monitored more strictly by the government. Normally the syllabus has to be approved, the instructors and the staff have to go through special approvals, and it's a much more structured, I guess rigid course. You can often add to it, but you certainly can't take away from the bare minimums that the government requires. And there can be benefits to that. Often you can get things done in fewer hours and things like that, fewer required hours. So that is an integrated program or a Part 141 program. In the United States, those tend to be more common at colleges and universities, but you can also still find those at smaller companies like FBOs and things like that. I managed an FBO for several years, and I actually founded a Part 141 program within that FBO, even though in many ways we were still a smaller flight school. So you might see something like how we were, where we offered both, both Part 141 and Part 61, and they had different benefits. Okay, so in addition to Part 141 or the integrated being at like maybe bigger universities, There are just commercial companies also that teach them. There are companies in the United States. Again, these aren't necessarily endorsements, but I'm just throwing out some names like American Flyers and one called ATP and things like that. And they basically specialize in having these big programs around the country that are Part 141. And then the last thing I'll say is that in some international countries, and we talked about this already in the Pathways episodes, There's also kind of like a variation on the integrated airline program, which is called the MPL, the multi-crew pilot license. And it's like an integrated program, except usually it's maybe, I guess you could say sped up more because it's integrated with one specific airline and you're basically locked into being with that airline and that airline's procedures And it's very much aimed at teaching someone how to be a first officer, that's like a co-pilot, just as soon as possible. And so there are certain shortcuts that are taken and certain trade-offs. And you can hear us talking more about that in a previous episode that we released, the second episode of Pathways, and where we talked about pilot careers. Okay, what are we missing? Where else can you learn how to fly? So there's one thing that I did not mention, and that is the military. So there's a lot of military training that happens, both helicopters and fixed wing as well. And so the military is still definitely a place where a lot of pilots will receive training, regardless of what country they're in. The military is still a popular trainer as well. Maybe not quite as much as it used to be in the past, which is why There are a lot more college programs and college degrees now than there used to be on that, but that is still a big one as well. And then for jet pilots who are very experienced, they also can go to special training centers called Part 142 centers, and those are the ones with the big moving simulators, usually of jets. And those are typically not where you would start your training. Those are much farther along in your training. These are not endorsements, but popular names you'll hear are flight safety, CAE, things like that. Okay, let's move right into our conversation about how you should choose the right flight school for yourself. 
The floor is wide open. Who has advice for what to look for for the right flight school and the right flight instructor? Make a list of questions for your flight instructor because, you know, it's kind of like trying to find a doctor or something. You're going to want to ask questions to make sure they're the right fit for you. Brooke, I'm so glad you said that. You're right. It's a little bit like finding a doctor. All flight instructors are certified, but that doesn't mean that their personality is necessarily going to match up with yours or that you like their, quote, bedside manner or something of that nature. So even if someone has a certificate, there can still be a wide variety of skill and personality and that type of thing. Dana? So I think step one is assessing your own personal needs because, for example, if you only want to get a sport pilot's license or if you only just want to do a few lessons, if you want a low-stress environment or if you only want to go to your private and you have no intention of pursuing flying as a career, maybe a laid-back flying club or something in a low-paced environment is more your speed than going to, you know, what a lot of people refer to as pilot mills that basically just push volume to get people to the professional level because that might not be the appropriate format for you. So well said. Any other thoughts on how to choose a good flight instructor or flight school? Yes, Max, go ahead. I want to go to a flight school that will teach me on a faster pace where I can save money and where I can get the instruction, get, get be ready to be a great pilot. So time, skills, and money. That is a really good summary. Yeah, let's talk about that. So first of all, skills. The quality of a flight instructor is one of the biggest determinants of how well someone will become a pilot. And a good flight instructor can train a pilot in less time. So it's good to have a good, well-skilled flight instructor because, well, let's say that maybe you get a really good flight instructor who charges a little bit more you might still end up saving money in the long run because you're not paying to repeat lessons. And maybe you're not paying to repeat your test if you didn't pass something well on your test. And it's very important to learn things correctly on the first try. We call that the law of primacy. If someone teaches you things not as well as they could on the first try, then you've got these bad habits that you're going to have to relearn later. Things that might seem simple can really hold someone back. Like, At the very beginning of a student's training, a flight instructor should teach the student how to hold the controls lightly and to trim out the aircraft properly. That means taking the pressure off the controls. Some instructors never teach that properly. That can have a huge impact on the rest of a person's flying career if they don't learn how to trim out properly in the first few lessons. Also, a good flight instructor can teach someone how to fly solo much more quickly and how to land much more quickly than a less experienced instructor. So so skill is important and money is important as well because flight training is so expensive. It's a huge investment of time and money. But again, the hourly rate doesn't always necessarily reflect the quality that you're getting and paying a little bit more for a good instructor might balance that out. And also that also goes hand in hand with time as well. Okay, who else would like to add to that or comment? Another thing, a lot of flight schools offer block time. Personally, I wouldn't do that because the flight school can fold and you'd lose all your money. 
That happened to me. I lost over $5,000 with a flight school plan in advance. Oh, Brooke, I'm glad you said that because I actually know of a flight school in a different state from where I am, but it did that somewhat recently also. It had a high washout rate because, frankly, it was a bad flight school. And so it came up with this policy that it would make students pay for all of their lessons up front. And then when the students got mad and left the school, the school refused to return their money. There sometimes might be some kind of legal recourse, but I know that the students were not able to get their money back from that flight school. So if the flight school wants you to pay large sums of money up front, that might be a sign that they're worried that they will lose their business. And so you should question whether or not that's true. Now, if you've been working for the school for a long time and then they'll give you a bulk discount and you know that they're trustworthy and they're good quality, that's different. But be very careful about who you give your money to in large sums. Very good point. So here's a question. Is every flight instructor good for every student? Enrique? Uh, No, that's that's a no, because... It's like kind of a personal relationship that you're going to have with your flight instructor, especially given that he's going to teach you a completely different set of skills that are not regularly found in in a day-to-day life. So there are some flight instructors that, I don't know, the personalities just match with you and others that just don't. So... As we said earlier, finding a good fit is crucial. Yes, it's like compatibility in any other relationship that you have in life. Some people might be wonderful for getting along with one type of personality, but maybe they're not good with your personality. Some instructors are like drill sergeants or drill instructors, and they think that in order to teach you better, they just need to raise the volume of their voice. Well, I can tell you that that doesn't work for me. That is not my preferred learning style. I've had to put up with it at certain times in my career, but that's not where I thrive. I much prefer a coach who's encouraging and positive and pointing out my progress. And everyone has different types of instruction that work best with their personality. And even though I didn't like a really rigid type of drill instructor, I know some people who actually kind of like a more authoritarian style and just want things laid out for them. So it really depends on who you are and what you are looking for. Yeah, Dana. It's funny that you mentioned that. I actually feel like I learned much better with somebody that's straight and to the point and is frank because I don't have so much of an emotional component when it comes to learning and work-related things. And, you know, that's, I'm, I'm totally unique from every other person. And, you know, some people, they learn by talking, they learn by having a rapport with people. But like you said, everybody's different and everybody learns at their own speed and at their own manner. So true. And Captain Majid. Hey, good morning, Captain Teresa. Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you guys here. Yeah. Teresa, my experience, 40-some years, being instructor, examiner myself, I should say flight instructions, whether at the basic level or advanced, is a talent. 
And usually talent comes with experience. When you go to school and find you know, a flight instructor who just graduated himself six months ago with commercial instrument multi-engine or CFI double I, how much he knows? He knows exactly you know, what he has learned. Like the example is, how do you raise your children? You raise them based on what you have, based on the way you have been grew up. You can do more than that. The same as flight instruction. If the guy has 200 hours, he knows 200 hours. But if you get experience, you know, 10,000 hours under your belt, when you train someone, then you can see where he, she is coming from, see his, her personality, attitude, you know, behavior. Sometimes you have to be so soft, you know, to instruct. But instruction is a talent, you know. Sometimes you have to patient. At some point, you may have to raise your voice a little bit to get his attention or her attention. This is all depends on the experience. Honestly, I've seen that. I've seen students sit in front of me, advanced student. You know, the guy is flying challenger, you know, flying golf stream, flying falcon. Sit there when I'm teaching him, I see he's nervous. So you have to put him at ease. How do I do that? Use my experience as a tool. Approach him, put him at ease, teach him, see the problem, you know, correct his problem. And then when checkride comes up, he's nervous. Everybody's nervous. I'm nervous. It is normal, you know, that you when you have a checkride, you're nervous. So, you know, know how to approach him, how to talk to him, put him at ease, and then, you know, do the job. You know, that's my advice. Okay, so you said some things that I agree with and some things that are a little controversial. So I want to talk about that. Is having an experienced instructor always the best option? Dana? So I think there's value in part of what Majid said. I, I agree it's a talent, but it's also a skill. And the skill is something that you're going to cultivate, you're going to grow, you're going to learn and, and improve with. But some people are going to have a natural talent. They're just good teachers. They're relatable. They're good at making examples and so forth. And while an experienced instructor might over time find out what works and what doesn't, sometimes, particularly with somebody that might be younger or might just have a personality type that wants to relate to somebody that's like them, they might learn from somebody that has a more recently shared experience. So if they just graduated from a program or they just went through whatever the student's going through, that's a different dimension of relatability and, and recency that, you know, they're going to speak more of the same language. But it's not mutually exclusive because while they might not have the experience to back up some of what they're saying, they might have more of a fresh, you know, book knowledge and a fresh emotional experience and what they felt and they can relate on that level. So I would agree that it, first of all, depends on the person. And then it also depends on what you're looking to get from them. It's true that experience can often give someone a big picture. And in some ways, there is no substitute for experience because experience helps the human brain see patterns and seeing patterns is good. But then the flip side is that sometimes an experienced instructor has stopped honing their craft and they've stopped getting better and they're stuck in old ways and they're not willing to try new ways. And I said that there's no substitute for experience. Well, there is a bit of a substitute for experience, and that's education. Education is probably the best substitute for experience because it can help teach people how to recognize patterns, even if they haven't seen them themselves. So with a new instructor, as Dana mentioned, sometimes they can empathize better with where the person is, and often they're more up to speed 
on what the current exams are like and that kind of thing. They they just went through the process so they know exactly what they were tested on and exactly what they needed to know. And in a perfect world, you would get experience from multiple types of instructors and they would be there would be a school where they maybe have new and older instructors kind of working together and maybe doing checks with each other or taking each other's students and that type of thing. That's my opinion. Who else wants to weigh in? A lot of flight schools just put one instructor with one student and occasionally maybe have more experienced instructors doing checks along the way for progress, which is great for getting a second opinion and hearing things a different way. But now some schools switch students around regularly with different instructors. Has anyone had that experience or do you want to speak about that, Enrique? Yeah, so pretty much that's the standard model here in Brazil. You don't have like a, a quote-unquote fixed flight instructor. I think that was good because I could pick up from, from different experiences. So, But the dangerous side of that is when the, the organization doesn't have a kind of a standard between themselves. So that's just the, the risky part, in my opinion. But yeah, I did that and it was good. That is a great point. When a flight school has multiple flight instructors switching around for students, the good news is that that has a tendency to standardize the organization better. And also it mirrors more of a professional environment. A lot of airline pilots fly with a different crew every time. And when they go for training, they really are with different instructors every time. So a school that's like that can mirror a professional environment. And again, it almost helps force standardization. But Enrique, I love what you said. Where it falls apart is when it's not standardized, or especially when it's not as standardized as people think. Because then you get one instructor insisting that a student do something one way during a lesson, and the very next lesson, another instructor might disagree with it and insist they do something another way. And of course, that can be very frustrating for the flight student. So those are the pros and the cons of that environment. And the way to do it well is to do a very good job of standardizing. Anyone else have anything to add about tips for finding a good instructor or flight school? Yes, Captain Majid. I'm just referring to you mention about the standardization. You know, airlines, they all follow the same SOP. They follow the same Bible. You know, everybody's one page. Consistency is there. But unfortunately, when you move to 135 operations or flying school, as you mentioned earlier, everyone has their own technique. You have 10 simulations. You may get 10 different instructors, 10 different verdicts, 10 different advice, 10 different, you know, technique. None of them follow one guideline. Now, back to initial training or, or basic flight training, yeah, it's good to have different instructor in one hand. It's not in the other hand. In one hand, if you fly with instructor, you don't like it. When you move to next instructor, you may like him, her, to see, oh, yeah, he has better tone. He can teach me better, basically. But, they, you know, that's, that's the advantage. Disadvantage is you may end up with 10 different instructors, 10 different, you know, wording, and you get nothing out of it. But I guess all you can do is just, you know, try a couple of instructors. You know, fly maybe with each of them at least one hour to see which one matches your personality and, and you stick with that person from A to Z. So it's interesting that you say that because I will tell you that one of the funniest complaints I ever got, which I actually agreed with and I loved, 
is when I was managing a flight school, I remember that I had to tell a student that they had to switch instructors. I think one of their instructors was leaving for another job or something, and they'd already had to switch instructors previously. And the student kind of rolled their eyes, and they said it jokingly, but they said, oh, man, I don't want to have to train another instructor. And, of course, it was a joke because, you know, normally the instructor is the one training the student, not the other way around. But what the student was saying was that it's like that student also has to train the instructor as well to adjust to their style and that kind of thing. And as funny as it was, it was funny because it was somewhat insightful as well. It takes a little while to really click with the other person. Any other comments or thoughts? By the way, oh, you can interview instructors and flight schools as well. It's great often to go in person to visit. Because when you're there, you can just look at people's faces, see how happy they are, see whether the instructors seem to like being there, see whether the students seem to like being there, see just how approachable and comfortable things feel. Trust your instincts and also look at the maintenance. Try to think, you know, how clean is this place? How well maintained is it? And, you know... A plane might be very airworthy on the inside, even if it looks old on the outside. But if a lot of things just seem to be a little bit off, like they're not well cared for, even if it's aesthetics, then you maybe want to start questioning, okay, are they cutting corners? Having an old plane doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad plane. It might be really well taken care of because airplanes have very different lives than cars. They can go much longer. But look for other things, signs of neglect, maintenance, that kind of thing. As you're interviewing an instructor, you can ask them how many students they've trained, what their pass rate is. That's a huge question. What's the rate of students who passed on the first try? Is it 80 to 90 percent or is it less than that? There's always going to be a certain percentage that don't pass on the first try, and the government kind of likes it that way. They actually want not everyone to pass because it shows that there's some integrity in the system. So again, look at whether or not you think they'll make good safety decisions. The way they teach, does that match the way that you like to learn? Can you spend a lot of hours with them? That kind of thing. And then, you know, ask yourself, is that person going to just show off or are they really going to try to make good decisions under pressure? Some new instructors, they'll go out and they'll scare the students on the first lesson. They'll go out and they'll do like aerobatic maneuvers and spins and things like that. And they think that they're trying to impress the student, but all they're doing is teaching the student to be scared of the plane or that the plane could be dangerous. And that is obviously not a good way to get started either. I mean, you should show someone how a plane can be safe and all of that. Okay, what else should we add? We'll go to Dana next. I think a really important one is assessing their intentions on how long they plan to stay or if they have plans to get an airline job soon or, or what have you. Because I've heard of that happening a lot and, and taking people by, by surprise, maybe even right before their check ride. And, you know, that can be a big shock if you're not managing your expectations. Yeah, that's a good point. And maybe they are going to leave soon, but are they communicating that with you? Are they keeping you informed? Are they... Are they trying to hide it from you or are they being upfront with you and being proactive and getting you another instructor after, after they leave, you know, someone who they can pass you off to really well and that kind of thing. Great point. Enrique. Yeah. So pretty much because as I said, like the relationship here is slightly different. I always take the code approach like, okay, I'm going to hire a service 
or some company to provide me a service. So I need to make sure that it fulfills my needs, it fulfills my expectations, and that's going to be a good fit for myself. So in those situations, I usually take the code approach. And it's okay to, to like go really cold on them. Like you're interviewing someone, you're going to invest your money, you're going to invest your time. So I don't see that as a problem, like to do the best you can, given your, your knowledge to interview them before choosing um, the one that you will go with. Great point. Remember, it's for you. The flight training is for you and you're hiring a service. Well said. Oh, I, I just would like to add sometimes that cheaper can end up being the most expensive decision that you could take. So not just go by, by the price of the, the overall flight training. So true. And Dana? So I got another one that's kind of an outside-of-the-box uh, concept. Just uh, realize that even once you've signed up, you can always leave. You can always change instructors. You can always change flight school. So, you know, even if it's on your third lesson, you know, go out for coffee, go out for lunch with your instructor maybe, or just hang out and talk candidly. And, you know, you'll assess pretty quickly whether or not things are a good fit or if there are concerns or red flags. So follow your gut. If something doesn't look right, don't feel like just because you invested some amount of money that you have to stick with it because the time in your logbook is going to stay there. That's a transferable asset. So don't feel like in, unless it's the case that you paid a lot of money up front that you're going to have anything lost except for a little bit of time finding another school or another instructor. 100% on that comment because a lot of people maybe do start off with not the best match and they realize it about the second or third lesson in. But it might take them 20 more lessons before they get up the courage to change. And do you really want that to be you? I mean, don't be afraid to change instructors and or change schools. And some people are worried about retaliation or something like that. Well, if you're worried about retaliation, then that might be another sign that you're in a toxic relationship to begin with. So, yeah, that is such a good point. Okay, I want to turn this conversation just a little bit. Now that we're talking about finding flight schools, let's talk financing. And then after that, we'll talk about what to expect on the first few lessons. And then we'll probably take a break. So different ways to finance flight training. Does anyone want to talk about maybe ways that you financed flight training? Or what advice would you give someone who doesn't have a lot of money to pay out of pocket? Enrica. So I heard some stories of people that went to a flight trading facility and they applied for a job over there, pretty much. So they started like cleaning the planes, doing some ramp work, that kind of stuff, and started saving some money to, to pay for the flight training. Some flight schools, they are really nice. They give like a discount for employees, that kind of stuff. In my case, I had to do a lot of uh, uh, gigs and other side jobs in order to get some cash because mainly my flight training was all paid by myself. I had some support from my family, but it was, as I said, a small support, not the, for the whole flight training. And yeah, I think those are my tips. Like you can get a job within the industry where you can get some discounts from, from the flight school. Those are great points. So Enrique is absolutely right. There are a lot of aviation companies 
that will give discounts to their employees. So if you can get a job at an aviation company that will give you discounts, that can be a huge benefit. And the other thing that Enrique said is that he had to do a lot of side jobs. A lot of pilots who are in flight training will get two jobs or sometimes even three jobs. And we call it the hustle. They will hustle as hard as they can. Sometimes just good old-fashioned hard work will help people get where they need to go. Who else wants to comment about what advice you would give someone for affording flight training? Dana? I would say a good first step when it comes to taking on any amount of debt is having a certain level of financial discipline. So if you're somebody that has credit card debt or other student loan debt, maybe consider paying that off first because your ability to pay and your debt to income ratio are are huge determinants of your credit worthiness. And if you're somebody that has to take out a loan or something for this, that's going to affect your interest rate and that's going to affect how much money you're paying in the long run. So consider, you know, not going out on the weekend. If you have credit card debt that's that's got high interest rates, pay that off first. Save money when you can because anything that you can not finance is is a huge load off of your shoulders later because all of that money has to be paid back at some point. Such a great point. Let's talk about loans. So at least in the United States, some people will deliberately go to a college or university so that they'll qualify for student financial aid. However, remember that that is one of the debts that cannot be forgiven even if someone goes bankrupt. So just be careful about how much debt you are taking on, especially if maybe you already have a degree and then you decide to switch careers or something of that nature. Also, there are private loans. Again, this is not an endorsement, but just as an example, there's a company called Pilot Finance Incorporated. I believe it's pilotfinance.com is their website. And they will give out loans towards certain ratings. It's probably not enough to pay for all of the ratings, but it might be enough to get someone the last rating that they need or the last few ratings that they need if they already have several. So you can certainly get loans, but just remember that you want to be careful about how much debt you are getting into and how much you can overextend yourself. Because a lot of airline jobs won't pay a lot initially. There are a lot of entry-level jobs that you have to do. And then when you work at a regional airline, you'll be paid a first officer's salary at first. That's the the co-pilot. So it takes a while before you can start making good money. Eventually, you can make great money if everything works out. But that's the point, is you have to make sure it will work out. Okay, Brooke, I know you had a comment. Also apply for scholarships because that would help. I mean, it might not help a whole lot, but every little bit helps. Thank you for saying scholarships. Yes, we cannot forget scholarships. Aviation has lots of scholarships, especially aimed at promoting diversity in aviation. And that is how I did it. That is the number one way that I did my flight training. And to be honest, that's a lot of the reason why I'm here today is because I'm paying it forward for all of the help that I received. I received scholarships to university, and then I received a big diversity scholarship from a major airline that paid for almost all of my flight training, everything except for my flight instructor ratings. And then I had to do a private loan from a family member. And then I had to 
get discounts from the company I was working for to keep increasing my instructor ratings. I had to hustle hard, do a lot of extra work on the side. And I did a lot of those steps to get the rest of my ratings, but I'm mainly here because of scholarships. And there are lots of scholarship links on the website, landingswithaflare.com, and also on the handout about flight training that we also have on our website. Okay, who else has a comment? Dana. So one big thing to consider that people might not think about if you're not in this space and if it's not a conversation you're part of very often is a lot of these scholarships, even if you say say it's a women in aviation scholarship, if you're a member or it might not even require that you're a member, it might not even require that you're a woman, a lot of these scholarships go unapplied for or underapplied for. So if you're the only person that showed interest and wrote an essay or whatever the boxes are checked, you could still be awarded these, even if it says, oh, you need a commercial rating, but you, you're only at 200 hours. You know, if nobody else qualified or maybe if, if it was essay based, that they liked your story better, you still stand a chance because those aren't necessarily hard requirements. And a lot of these like type ratings or internships or experiences or, you know, financing towards ratings, if they're not applied for and you're the only person that gets it, you know, that's a big chance to, uh, to miss out on a good opportunity. Dana, that is such a good point. So I can verify what Dana said about how not a lot of people apply for a lot of aviation scholarships. There are a few that it seems like everybody applies for that are really competitive. Those are the ones by the really big organizations, like Women in Aviation is probably the biggest one. Those They have a great database of scholarships, but that's also the one that everyone seems to know about. And so those are very hard to get. But I know a lot of small scholarships from like small EAA chapters, that's the Experimental Aircraft Association, and things like that. And there's just these little chapters in different, you know, small airports around, around the area. And they say, we've got thousands of dollars here and no one's applying for it. And they might only have a few candidates that even apply for the whole scholarship. So if you're the kind of person who's willing to do the research and branch out and look for a lot of the smaller scholarships, there might be very little competition. That's probably the biggest complaint I hear from people offering small scholarships is that they just don't seem to get applicants. That is such a good point. Yeah, Dana. And and a funny thing that I just thought about through talking about this is, is a lot of these are essay based and a lot of them might just be tell us your story, tell us, you know, what inspired you to get into aviation. So if you write one good essay that you vetted and you submitted, you might be able to use that five or six times, even with just a little bit of tweaking. So don't think that this is a large investment of your time necessarily. Such a great point. And that reminded me, there are a few basic rules to getting a scholarship. Believe me, I've gotten scholarships. So the first one is you have to have a good, clean application. Normally a good essay and good recommendation letters from people who preferably aren't directly related to you, but who either have a high position in the industry or who know you well or both. And then your application itself should be very clean. And what I mean by clean is it should be proper grammatically. It should have complete sentences. It should not have spelling errors and typos. And if you write your phone number in one format, you should keep it in the same format the whole way along. Things should be in the same format and look very professional. Also, typically what they look for is they look for volunteering activities and leadership activities, because those are predictors 
of whether or not you will be contributing in the future to the industry because they want you to be a good investment. So if you have volunteered in the past and you have had leadership activities in the past, then that's a predictor that you will continue to do that in the future in aviation. Like, for example, I'm glad that someone thought I had potential to lead and volunteer (laughs) and gave me a scholarship because now I am trying to lead and volunteer as much as I can. I mean, so think of how you could make yourself a good investment to keep paying it forward and giving to the industry. Let's talk about other kinds of financing. So we've talked about getting a job at an aviation company, working two or three side jobs, or what we might call side hustles. We've talked about scholarships. We've talked about loans, student financial aid. And another one that we could bring up is actually GI Bill or working in the military. Again, you can get training in the military. That's a good way to do it especially if money is an issue for yourself. And of course, there are trade-offs. There's going to be a commitment to the military. But then once you're in the military, depending on what country you're in, you can often get veterans benefits that will pay for future university education and or flight training at certain uh, official flight schools and that kind of thing. And then now there are other airline programs that are starting to become more popular thanks to the pilot shortage where they will give you certain reimbursements or at least partial tuition reimbursements for attending certain schools. And there seem to be more of those coming up almost every time I look. So I would definitely encourage people to look into those too. Any other final thoughts about how to finance flight training? Okay, well, like I said, you can do a combination of all of the above. Okay, let's finish off this section before the break by talking about what to expect on your first few flight lessons. So a lot of times people will go and take a discovery flight. And as we mentioned when we were talking about instructors, you might want to take a discovery flight at two or three different flight schools or with two or three different instructors so that you can compare them against each other or or something of that nature. And you can kind of interview them at the same time. So a discovery flight is another name for an introductory flight. And this is one of the best ways to get started. The last thing I want to talk about is surprises that people get with initial training expectations. A lot of times we would find that people were surprised by the number of cancellations. I can't think of a better way to put it, but that's just unfortunately what would happen. So we'd have a really hopeful new pilot or initial aspiring pilot sign up for a lesson and then we'd have to call them and say, oh, I'm sorry, we have to reschedule, and maybe there was bad weather, or I'm sorry, we have to reschedule because maybe the plane was down for maintenance, or I'm sorry, we have to reschedule because maybe it was winter and the instructor came down with a cold or flu or something like that. And so then we'd get these really disgruntled people who didn't understand aviation, and they'd say, what kind of flight school do you think you are? You keep canceling and rescheduling. That is so unprofessional. And what they didn't know is that that is a normal fact of aviation. I mean, even the airlines cancel a lot for weather and sometimes for staffing issues or maintenance issues. So aviation is not like just buying a ticket to the movies where if you buy it, you expect to go there and get what you bought. In flying, there are numerous reasons that you might have to cancel. And 
for however many times you schedule lessons, there are going to be lots of cancellations along the way. So just know that that is part of the system. It doesn't mean that you have a bad flight school if they have to keep canceling for the weather or something like that. And as a matter of fact, that should be a red flag if, if they're taking you up in your early lessons when it's horribly bumpy out or, or something like that. Unless they warned you and you were still okay with it, uh, you know, you want to make sure that they're doing what's in your best interest as well. This is Captain Teresa. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you were one of the people being recorded, I thank you. If you were one of the people that we edited out of this recording, I beg your forgiveness. There were many reasons that this episode may have been edited, including length, audio quality, and accuracy. We don't always have the right answers. I ask you to view this as entertainment and not as a replacement for formal instruction or advice. If you want to send constructive feedback or if you have questions, feel free to contact us through our website, landingswithaflare.com. You can view announcements on our Instagram account, landingswithaflare. You can also join our live conversations on Clubhouse in the Club Pilot Flight Training. If you got value out of this podcast, please consider subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a positive review. Wherever you are in the world, we wish you happy landings.